We're going to be in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We've been there for a number of weeks, and uh, we're drawing to the tail end of the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're on commandment number eight and nine today, eight and nine. And it is my prayer that the Lord will, as he has on other commandments, reach farther than maybe your mind goes as you read these. These commandments are short. And it's easy to read them and say, well, I don't really do that, or that doesn't define me, or I've never done that. And how revealing it is, the nature of pride, the deceitfulness of sin, that we can minimize and even reduce these commandments to be something kind of archaic, isn't it? I mean, that's the Ten Commandments. That's the Old Testament, right? We're not supposed to worry about that stuff anymore. Oh, I did not realize how incredibly applicable the Ten Commandments would be. Just moving through and sitting in each command and watching as Scripture builds these out. These commandments are given for our good, for the good of God's people back in the book of Exodus. And we can benefit and grow so much in the day in which we find ourselves by pursuing obedience from the heart to these commandments. It is only possible to do so through the gospel, and we'll see that today. The importance of the work of Christ, the perfect law keeper, the one who has given us victory over our slavery to sin, over Satan and even over death. And so with that in view, would you join me in prayer as we prepare to dive into these verses today? Lord, we treasure this book, your word. We come now with confidence and eager expectation to hear from you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this place, in these people. Stir in us. Open our eyes to see your word, your truth, and to love it. Lord, convict us in our lives where there is sin. And then meet us with the provision of the gospel and the hope and the confidence of victory through Jesus Christ. And then move us to obey, we pray, to apply these words, not just to to hear and walk away, to forget what we've heard, but to then live them out, as the book of James calls us to do, to put faith into action and, and then live these words, Lord. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you shall not steal or lie. That would be a, a, a way to sum up the 8th and ninth commandment. You shall not steal or lie. We're in verses, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse six, uh, 15 and 16. But as I studied, I also found that some of these themes are repeated in Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 15. And so we're going to jump ahead as well and hit a little case law that builds out these short commandments. Let's begin with stealing. You shall not steal. When I was young, probably about first grade, much to my parents, uh, I'm sure, dissatisfaction, someone at school, must have been my teacher, gave me an entire roll of stickers like this. Okay? Now, you've got to know a little bit of the family dynamic. There's five of us. I have an older brother, a younger sister, which makes me the middle child. Okay? Okay? Which is another way of saying 
my stuff mattered to me. And I had to kind of guard it a little bit. I, it wasn't common that I actually owned something. It was either used to be my brother's or my sister thinks it's hers or whatever, you know. So I went around the house one day without really asking my parents if I could, and I marked my territory clearly with a crayon on every sticker, property of Jeremy. And it was, it was awesome. I loved it because let there be no doubt, that book is mine. It's mine. Now, the echo of those words probably began earlier than first grade. Not long after I learned how to speak did that word roll off of my tongue when maybe there was a tug of war over a toy. And from deep within my heart, there was this very natural inclination to say, mine, right? Anyone else identify with this or is it just me? Okay. Now, you ask the question, is this wrong? What if in that equation, it was mine? It was my toy. And, you know, little Johnny down the street was in my home and wanting to steal my toy and take it and make it his own without my permission. And I respond with, no, mine. Now, I don't want to overstate the case. Obviously, as parents, we want to teach our children how to share and how to be generous and loving and all of these things. But we need to uh, understand here that there is a certain sense, and certainly in Scripture, that there is a, what I would call, a right of ownership that is assumed throughout the Scriptures. It's a right of ownership. This is something very basic to humanity. If you work, and then you are able to acquire uh, material goods, there is a basic right that would say, that which I own is my property. It's, it's mine. And to have someone then take it from me is a, a breach of that right. It's, it's wrong to do. When you come to stealing, this is assumed. This is, this is the assumption that's built upon this command. You shall not steal. Okay, so the right of ownership. It deals a lot with the question of personal property. Now, here's the thing. We spend a lot of time being cautious and, and, and careful not to take our personal property and bow before it. That's idolatry, correct? Or to take our personal property and put our hope in it, depend upon it, look to it as our stability instead of the Lord. That too would be idolatry and maybe a shattering of a, a number of commands. But there is a sense in which we have to understand our things that we own are, in a sense, uh, are kind of a reflection of who we are. We are not defined by our stuff, but our stuff is kind of a display of us, the things we like. We were working uh, yesterday to move Fred and Sherry and some of their things, and uh, he had this awesome little lawn ornament here in the, in the front of his house. And he said, hey, let's not forget that. And it was, it was kind of funny. There was two of them. One of them was a snail. The other one was a, a really heavy little pig. But it wasn't a normal pig. This was a lawn ornament pig, and this pig had wings. And although he was missing an ear, there's still a, an attachment to this pig. You can't leave that there. You've got to bring that pig along. And so we brought it along in the truck, and then we put it in the storage unit, and 
and, and it's there. Now, there was a point along the way where one of the Gustafsons said, I, I want that. I want that. That makes me laugh. That's kind of cute, you know. Let's bring that. And th that became their property. How about proper business conduct? That what does the scripture have to say about that? A whole lot. How is it that we are to conduct ourselves as representatives of the God who is on this earth than carrying his glory in the way that we engage in business? Buying or selling. A lot is made of this in the Bible, and it assumes ownership. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 2, some people have argued for a quasi-communistic New Testament church. That is not in view. That's not the case. Look at this. All who believed were together and had all things in common. What does that mean? It means that in Christ, whatever differences were there before were now made null, and Jesus was the common in their unity. They, they were a community. They, sh they shared together. Now, how is it that they were sharing together? They were selling their what? Possessions. They had property. They, they, they owned things. And they would sell as someone had a need. They would say, you know what? We've got this piece of land. This person has this need. We're going to sell this land, take some of the profit, and help meet that need. Right? And, and this is the nature of the gospel. This is what happens when Jesus is on the scene. People are changed and generosity begins to overflow. But they didn't become some commune in the sense that they couldn't own anything anymore. They had possessions and they employed their possessions to meet needs in tangible ways. That's a great pattern for the New Testament church. So the question then begs, what is being prohibited here this is how I'd sum it up. Stealing, if you were going to define stealing, it would be simply this, unauthorized change of possession. Stealing is the unauthorized change of possession. It can involve a number of things, if you think about it. There are active ways to steal, and there are passive ways to steal, and I want to illustrate this by encouraging you to turn 22, 1 through 15, and let me just read these verses to you to show you the reach of case law that was given by God to his people about stealing. Verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If a stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, this is the passive form of stealing, verse 5, grazed over or let his beast, lets his beast loose in it and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it's stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near 
to God and show whether, he, uh, whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So the idea would be, here, neighbor, hold that money for me. Then I go and hire someone to break in and steal it, and then I blame my neighbor for losing my money, and I have it, and then may I make him pay. That, that's stealing. And so all of these plots, all of these different cases of, of thievery. Verse 9, for every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or a beast to keep safe, and it dies or it is injured or it is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether he whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If he was hired, it came for his hiring fee, for its hiring fee. So this is, this is how uh, lawyers fill their shelves with books, okay? This is, how, this is case law. And what's amazing is that God is giving this to his people. What really is functioning here is a limit upon what should be done in cases of thievery. These are limits, really, more than anything. Should I just kill a man who steals from me? Is that fine? Well, no. There needs to be uh, some care with which we engage the situation. And then the question of restitution. How do we make it right? Well, five sheep are to be given. Or in the case of Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus says, uh, I will repay fourfold what I have taken. Some of that language is rooted in this case law. As he said, I've, I've stolen, I confess it, and the gospel meets me, changes me from the inside out, and now I want to make it right. Interesting. Active stealing or passive stealing. One time we were at a church work day, and the associate pastor borrowed our scoop shovel. Dearly beloved scoop shovel, I might add. My favorite scoop shovel, the good ones, right? And he broke it. He broke it. Now, it wasn't on purpose. We were working at the church, shoveling dirt or something, and the handle broke. What do you do? Is that stealing? Well, not necessarily. He borrowed it. But to err on the side of love, he went down and bought as close to that shovel as he could find. Problem was, it wasn't quite up to par. But hey, that's okay. It was close, okay? And he, and, he, and he showed love in that. There's thought to these things. Now the categories build out for us in our day. We think through these things. Here's uh, some, uh, I'm sure, big canopy terms and then more specific things. Theft, robbery, embezzlement, you know, Ponzi schemes, right? Extortion, pilfering, okay? You're in the office place. And you know at home... You need more post-it notes. 
Okay, and you're walking, hey, there's a whole stack of them right there. That's pilfering. That's stealing. And it's wrong. Hmm. Deceitful contracts, those who own and run and operate businesses. Tax fraud. Fraudulent sales. This would include price gouging. Okay, this happened recently during these hurricanes and those gas stations were jacking their prices. That's stealing in the sense that it takes advantage of those who are in a situation and you inflate the price because you know that they have to have that commodity. False accounting, falsified time cards. When you write down that you worked more hours than you know you actually worked. Or flip the, uh, the, the equation around. Wage fraud. I'm going to hire you for this job. I'm going to pay you this amount. At the end of the day, however, the person comes and they've worked hard all day long and you say, eh, I think I'm going to only give you 10 bucks instead of 20. Whoa, hey, hold on. You said 20. You've stolen. That's stealing, right? Cheating. Students, cheating in all of its forms. Now, I read some stats last night. Uh, digital cheating is at an all-time high. Why? Because everybody's got a phone. You can just put whatever you need for that exam on your phone. You can tuck it away. Cheating is sin. It is stealing answers. It is stealing. And it's wrong. Sixty-something percent of all college students admit to cheating. There is a culture increasingly around us that is like NASCAR. Okay? In NASCAR, they say if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Because in NASCAR, everybody cheats. And the only reason it's wrong is if you get caught and punished. That's weird. That's not, that's not honorable. That's not what the command has in view here. Cheating is wrong even when you succeed even when you are not caught. Hmm. Plagiarizing. Oh, the numbers on this are staggering. I had a buddy who worked at a startup business in the Bay Area down in California, and this business just exploded in growth because you know what they did? Is they created a software that could find when people were lifting paperwork from others online, and they would scan these papers, and it would just like display. This entire page was lifted. This whole paragraph was someone else's work. And that business grew rapidly off of the sin of stealing. Bribery, overcharging of interest, stealing time. This is when you're at work, but you're not working. You're on Facebook. Mm. Identity theft. Blackmail. The list goes on. It reaches beyond just a simple command, and it shows how deeply the Lord detests it. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Not simply an offense against, against the one that I'm cheating, right? So unequal weights, you have two sets of stones that you weigh your grain with. One set you use when you're buying the grain, right? And another set you use when you're selling the grain. They weigh different weights, but they look the same. And in doing so, you commit an abomination against the Lord himself, not only against your neighbor. Hmm. 
This is also a form of thievery. Will a man rob God? Malachi says. Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have I robbed you? God responds, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, he says. Robbing God. They were bringing to God sacrifices of leftovers. Sheep with blemishes instead of the best of their flock, the first of their fruits. They were giving to God uh, kind of the whatever portion. And in doing so, he says, you're stealing from me. You're stealing. Hmm. This meets us as well as we give, as we make a statement each Sunday in worship. Where will my money go? Who has blessed with these finances? Who ultimately do I want to praise in response to this? It's not all of it. It's a portion. Good Shepherd Community Church, you are a very generous church. And I praise God for the incredible and faithful giving that we see here. And so don't feel accused in this. However, don't settle for giving God afterthoughts. Give Him firstfruits. Find a way to please Him and, and avoid these kinds of interactions with the Lord. Give sacrificially. Give joyfully. Right? Give in a way that pleases Him from a, a joy-filled heart. This is who you are. Look at all that you've given. I give back to you a portion to say thank you and worship you. Now take it and Make it accomplish kingdom work, oh God. Spread that money. Stretch that money around the world. Mm. Out of the heart, Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. And here's one, theft. Stealing begins where? In the heart. Stealing is a misappropriation of priority. It, it puts value on certain things above other things. Certainly, first and foremost, it, sh it, it shows a lack of fear for the Lord and His command. But more than that, when I steal, I place whatever it is that I'm taking above the person that I take it from and above the Lord. It reveals a heart that is not right as it relates to the item being taken. Kevin DeYoung said this, greed is stealing with the eyes of your heart. That's greed. Greed simmers in the heart. Greed grows. It's never satisfied. In fact, before the crash on Wall Street in 2008, there was a sermon proclaimed by one of those really crooked Wall Street execs that was saying, greed is good. Greed is good. Look at how that worked out. If you give room for greed in your heart, if you stew on this, and this is where we're going to spend some time next week in that 10th commandment, the, covet, the coveting nature. The, I, I look, I see, it's desirable. I want, I want, I can't have, I want. So, I take. I take. 
all of these commands make their way back to the heart, it seems, doesn't it? These commands were always meant to be about the inside, about the heart. What should we do instead then? As believers, as God's people, what is it that we should do? If we're not to steal, what should we be defined by as we walk this out? This is how I would sum it up. Love generously from the heart. Love generously from the heart. Here's a quote from J.I. Packer. He, he, he captures this command by saying, love to our neighbor, which, by the way, is the fulfillment of the law. Love to our neighbor requires us to hold sacred not only his person, his life, that's the sixth commandment, shall not kill, and his marriage, you shall not commit adultery, right? His, his marriage we are to uh, hold sacred, but also his stuff, his property, and his wages that he has worked for and earned. We are to hold those with esteem and guard those. The love for a neighbor. Gospel transformation is required for this to take place. I'm not talking about empty moralism here. You can, you, you can do the right thing, and uh, many people do. They pay their employees what they've committed to pay them. Uh, they will uh, tell the truth in court, right? Uh, that, that's... Uh, something that can happen, but, but what about from the inside with a motivation to the glory of God? We need to be changed because I am fixed upon myself, the kingdom of me. I want stuff. I want to get stuff. I want to build an earthly kingdom. I want my stuff, and I want it now. And if I don't have to work for it, just take it. That's even better, right? That has to be changed at the core. We need gospel transformation. We need to find satisfaction for aching hearts and then move out of that place. This is how Piper defines love. I come back to this. This is such a good definition of love. Love is the overflow of joy in God. What is that? That is what I'm craving. That is the real longing of every human heart. Stuff, material possessions, cannot satisfy the ache and the longing that God has wired my heart to find only in Him. So my joy in God is His love to me. And then what does it do? It delights to meet the needs of others. It, it flows away from me rather than toward me. I am filled, satisfied, overjoyed in Him, and I say, how can I show love to you? It's a radical change. It's a 180-degree turn. Let the thief no longer steal. What is the thief to do? This is a man who has stolen. What is he to do? Well, labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Go to work. Get busy. Stop cheating on your test and study. Do the work. Stop cheating and go to work. And then what? Labor with his own hands. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It goes beyond me. So that, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Wow. Look at it. It pushes, it pushes out. There is a goal. Yes, honest work. 
Yes, honest wage. Yes, I, I need things. I, I, need th- I need to eat. I need to have things. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have nice things. However, if that's all it is, I miss the whole point. I have been blessed to be a blessing. It is never to terminate here. God gives good gifts that we might, in the same way, give good gifts to those in need. Prepared beforehand, good works that we may walk in them. As for the rich in this present age, friends, that would include all of us. If we hold uh, our definition of rich up to the rest of the world, we're rich. We all are. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What does that mean? Don't be arrogant. What you have, God has given. If you you are anything, be grateful, not prideful. Oh, this is the gospel. It changes the way we think. Then, they are to do good. And how are they to be rich? In good works. To be generous, ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm reading through the book of James and he says, listen, if there's someone in need and you say, oh, brother, I know you have that need. I hope it works out for you. Be blessed. And you walk away. That's not love. I've done nothing to meet the need. Love moves in faith to work generously to meet needs. What can I do to help? What do I have that he doesn't? How can I meet that need? Jesus focused us to this again and again. R. Kent Hughes really captured it well. Came across this quote this past week. He says this, Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Who is he declaring it to? Himself. His own heart. Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. And then he says, perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. I will not bow at the altar of money or materialism. One of the reasons we still pass these bags is because it is an act of worship. It is good for our hearts to regularly pass that bag by and remind our hearts as we drop generously and joyfully the tithes and gifts that we have prayed about and arrived at to give to the Lord and we pass it through as a part of worship. We de-deify money in the process. It is not God. You cannot serve two masters. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Who are we going to serve here? The Lord alone. We will use our money to that end. Praise the Lord for his gifts. Right? That's, that's the heart. It's the heart that gives. And so it moves us from an inward focus to an outward focus. I watch these, these Uh, renovation shows or these house hunting shows and you just can't help but wonder at some point how many vacation homes are necessary like uh, how much do we have to renovate if in fact we were to turn a portion of that focus outward 
what could be accomplished to meet needs in other people's lives? Even those that are in this room right here. To have eyes to see a need and a heart to move generously beyond myself to meet that need. It happens all the time. I get to see it. I, I get to, 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 to witness these things. I praise God for that. We move from getting to giving. We move from hoarding to helping. Rather than heaping and making more of my stuff and building an earthly kingdom, I say I want to lay up for myself treasures in heaven. I want to put value on the things that are coming forever. And I give. Mm, these things are good for us. Satisfying. Indeed, they, they satisfy more than heaping on the pile of earthly belongings. And let me just remind you of this. The old, uh, there's no U-Haul behind the hearse. I mean, you can't take it with you. But you can lay up treasures in heaven that will never fade or be destroyed. Oh, friends, let's all grow in this. Let's place value where it is to be placed. This is what we are called to as much as we are called away from stealing. Now, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's deal with this one as well while we're at it because the two are almost inseparable. They go together time and again. If you make your bed as a thief, you need the comforter of lies to cover your sin. And you, in a sense, pull the covers up of sin to hide your sin, and you weave a tangled web. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now, don't miss this. Of that list, notice, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. That's the first time it, it's mentioned. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. Two out of seven on that list, God says, I hate lies. I hate lies. The one who sows discord among brothers. I have been in ministry a number of years, and uh, on a couple different occasions, I have uh, had quite close relationships with uh, a couple guys that I thought I knew well. One was actually a pastor that I hired down in California to, to work in a ministry of our church. What I didn't realize is that from my very first phone call in the interview process, he lied. He lied on his resume. He lied in our conversations. And then he proceeded to lie again and again and again for how long was it? Like three years of lies. And eventually, as it always seems to do, his lies began to catch up with him. And the more he would weave, and he was brilliant at it, he was so good at it, he had his wife fooled. Eventually, it began to cave in. And his lies had covered not only the fact that he had lied, but he, he was hiding all kinds of awful behavior. He lost his job. He almost lost his wife. Praise God for the gospel. She forgave. She hung in there. He repented. Well, they're still married by God's grace. Uh, 
I remember sitting on a park bench with him. I asked him, who are you? I don't even know. Tell me what was true of these past number of years. Help me with this. It was devastating. What I thought we had, we didn't have at all. Why? Because we did not have truth. We didn't have truth. I saw this repeat itself in another scenario, and the consequence was even far more severe. Devastating. Sins which will linger for a long, long time. Truth and honesty, my friends, are the very foundation of every relationship that you have. If you don't have these things, you don't have much. The fabric of a society cannot sustain unless truth is in the mix. Justice itself, the justice system, both for God's people and even in our justice system, you have no sense of justice if the witness is lying on the stand, if he's bearing false witness. What do you hope to achieve? And in this case, life and death were in view. If, if you get a couple false witnesses and they lie and they falsely accuse, that man who's innocent might be killed. Truth is the fabric. The Lord knows how important it is for a people to tell the truth. No society can be sustained without the foundation of honesty and truth. It's not moralism. It's the most basic building block of relationship. And it's right. And it's righteous because it's who God is. So what then is prohibited by this second commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's not simply narrowed to a court proceeding. This is built out to be much farther of a reach than this and you see this throughout the rest of the book and the scriptures any line so speaking what is not true what is half true emphasizing only one aspect of the truth stretching or twisting the truth or misrepresenting the truth i'm sure there would be more ways to describe this it's lying it's when i employ certain aspects of things that are true and then turn it for my agenda or I fabricate from nothing and create falsehood the most believable lies begin with truth and then twist twist heresy thrives with just enough truth to make it seem real and then it turns don't forget this. Satan is described as what? A liar from the beginning and the father of lies. He is the antonym of all that, that God is. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Oh, friends, there are moments that we have faced, that moments that you will face where it happens. You, 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 you have to choose. Oh, how easy and convenient the lie is. How, how, how much it just reaches out. Oh, it seems like I could make this all go away with just a, a I didn't do that. Someone else did. Oh, problem solved. Thank you for telling the truth when I know it was a lie. And then eventually the truth has a way of finding it out. You know, the most devastating thing, I think, 
is when you become good at lying. When you become settled with it, even confident in it, so much so that your conscience is seared and it doesn't even bother you anymore. Parents, with your children, make lying distinct from other sins. Make clear how toxic and deadly lying is. Teach them young. Oh, I remember this. I came home from school one day. This must have been second grade. And uh, it was rare, but on this occasion, no one was home. We never locked anything. Everything was always unlocked. The keys were in the car and the whole bit. Uh, And I had a buddy with me, and I knew the rule. The rule was, if no one's home, you can't have friends in the house. I broke that rule. Sin number one, okay? We went in. Now, we displayed. We had fun. I had these little pop guns, you know, back when you could do that. And then my mom pulls in the driveway. I heard the rocks under the tires. And I don't even remember this kid's name. I don't. But I remember saying to him, get out. Go out the front. Quick. And so he's like, huh, what? What do you mean? I'm like, you're not supposed to be here. Go. And so he's like hustling across the street. And my mom, (laughs) she sees that, right? She comes in the back door. Well, hi, Jeremy. How was school? Good, good. You know? I was probably sweating. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure I was. And then she says, did you have someone uh, in the house? The convenience of the lie. What are you going to say? Oh, how easy it is to sin, to commit an abomination against the Lord. No. I said, no, I I didn't have anything. She said, "Uh, Jeremy, I'm going to ask you again. Did you have anybody over in the house? At that point, I'm like, man, I dug my hole. I better get in it. I said, no, I did not. And she then called my father because she knew I was lying. And my dad came home, and I received a punishment, which is distinct in my memory today. And I am grateful for because it showed me that, yes, there are other sins, but this sin is especially awful. And I tasted on my lips the sting of that sin. And I remember thinking, this is a big deal to my parents. And it probably should be to me too. I wish I could say that was the only time that happened. I had to learn that lesson a few more times. The convenience of a lie is but for a moment. It is fleeting. And the devastation of a lie is lingering. In fact, you can have a reputation as a truth teller and in one exchange shatter your integrity and throw away what would take so long to establish. A good name is more desirable than riches. It's not worth it. Now, let's get a little bit more specific. Gossip. Gossip is an interesting one. Gossip is, in a sense, rumor spreading. It's rumor spreading. I like that definition. It's, I don't necessarily know if it's true or not, but I'm going to pass it on because it's tasty and it's interesting. Now, it might be a lie, and I, in, in passing it on, I might just join in with that. It might not. It might be true. But in any case, it's the spreading of what? Of information that 
it's not really mine to spread. Stealing. You see it? You see, I've stolen. I don't own that. It's not my property. It's, it's information. And if, if I don't have permission, I certainly shouldn't be talking about it to other people. Now, slander is a little bit more specific. Slander is knowing untruth and passing it anyway. I know this isn't true, but I pass it along like it is. It's devastating. Exaggeration, this would be one that might be considered an acceptable sin. I've got roots in Texas, as I've shared in the past, and down there, exaggeration is part of the culture, right? I mean, you, that's just what you do. How big was a fish? Oh, it was this big a week ago. This week, it's this big, right? I mean, it got bigger in one week. Exaggeration has no place in your mouth, believer. It doesn't. It's not true. It's a lie. Exaggeration at the end of the day is pride. It's rooted in pride. Either I want someone to feel more pitying of me because I did all of these things and then I make it sound more than it actually was, or I want to exaggerate the other direction and try to minimize what I actually did when I know it was worse so that I won't be quite so accountable for it. Abomination. I made the resolve years ago uh, not to exaggerate. You have to choose this. Choose this. I want to be true to history. Not a historical revisionist. Leave that to people who write history books that aren't true. Christians are to tell the truth. Tell the truth. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. God cannot lie. He is the ultimate promise keeper. This is where the bar is set. Jesus describes Himself as the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth. God's Word is described as true. The sum of your Word is truth. Sanctify them, Jesus prays, in the truth. Your Word is truth. In contrast to that is Satan. And darkness and evil and corruption. He is the father of lies. An angel of light who masquerades. He pretends to be something that he is not. We are to shine the light of God and His truth in a world that's desperate for it. Let's not lie. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So the question then begs, what should we do? What should we do instead? Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. If you're going to tell what happened to you last week, tell it exactly as it happened. If you're going to put down uh, on your time card what you worked, then make it precise and be honest. Tell the truth. Don't steal. If you did something wrong, King David, and you committed this sin uh, by coveting, and then you committed this sin by taking your neighbor's wife, and then you committed this sin by what? Lying to cover it up. And then you committed murder to try to cover it up again. Oh, what a mess. Tell the truth. 
Kids, if you have sinned and done something wrong, you have a choice. Dig a deeper hole or confess and tell the truth and pray that in that, God would show grace to you. Yes, there's consequences for sin, but there at least is a degree of, as a parent, when I know my child is telling me the truth, I can appreciate that. There's an ownership there. There's greater regard and respect. Always tell the truth. Speak the truth in love. It's not just the raw truth. It's, it's to be done in love. Loving my neighbor. It's not about me. It's about them pushing it out. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. Be resolutely precise and accurate. Here's what I would just say. Uh, as believers, this should define us because we have a mission that has everything to do with absolute truth. And if our lives are fuzzy or confused when it comes to our integrity or our ability to be trusted, why should someone believe me if I share with them the gospel, the message of life and hope and the promise of life in, in, in Christ. Why would they believe me then if they struggled to believe me about what happened to me two weeks ago? It takes work. I, I just would say this. If you don't remember, just say it. Uh, just qualify it. I'm not really sure. I think it might have been this, right? At, at least do that so that you can work hard to do your best to remember. Maybe the older you get, you have to do that more. I find that more common for me now than I did 10 years ago. We should be known as a people who care so much about truth that we are accurate and precise with it when we speak. Lips that are true. So to close with this, God is and his people are to be what? God is and his people are to be, maybe sum it up with this, Generous and trustworthy. Generous and trustworthy. Both of these loving, right? Both of these just lavish in love. Hmm. Response this morning, I want to draw your attention to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ because the reality is all of us in this room are liars and all of us are thieves. We've all committed these sins. We have stolen the glory of God. That is the epitome of sin. We have lied to minimize our sin. We have lied even in confession of our sin at times to, to make it seem less offensive than it really was. We need a Savior. So, to be clear, this sermon does no good if all we leave is, is well, I, I should not lie and should not steal. The Pharisees can do that. This sermon only lands in us when we are staring at the Jesus who purchased us from our sins and then has commissioned us to obey him as king and Lord. Now, think about this cross. Here is Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he is crucified between what? 
two thieves, one on either side. Two thieves on the same hill. At the beginning of which, both mock and revile him, we read. Both of them. While they're being crucified, think about how insane this is. They're being crucified, and they're mocking and joining in and reviling Jesus. And then something changes. Something sovereign takes place in the heart of one thief as he shares this time, these six hours with Jesus, and hears Jesus' words. And all of a sudden, he speaks in excruciating pain. He speaks over to Jesus, and he says, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's an ownership of sin. A hope in Christ. The provision for all of our sin. And a confidence in His return. That's what we need. That's what we need. Because we have sin-stained hands and unclean lips. And our only hope is Jesus. That's our only hope. Remember me, Lord. Remember me. And then we have an opportunity to do what the thief never had an opportunity to do. Obey. Obey. To live out before a dark and dying and sin-stained world what it looks like to shine. And so that's our assignment this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these words, for the way they meet us, but we also thank you for Jesus, our Savior, because without him, we would be hopeless. I thank you for the love that you have shown us, for the way that you, through Christ and his work, uh, his, his accomplishment of forgiveness and salvation, that, that we can be changed by faith in him, to, to be new people who now don't live just for the kingdom of self, but live for your kingdom, to make much of you, to obey and honor our King as Lord and Master, the boss of our lives. Lord, help us to obey these, these commandments from the heart. Make us a generous people, more this week than last, and help us to be a, a people who delight and rejoice in what is true, and detest lies. Keep falsehood far from us, we pray. May our lips speak what is true. In Jesus' name, amen.